there's something scary hiding in the back of your closet. Your bathing suits and summer clothes thing you're pretty sure don't fit anymore. What if there was a way to get into summer shape in one visit? Here's Dr. Brian Strand for Sonabello to explain. It really is quite remarkable. Sonabello doctors use a technology called microlaser fat removal, and the results are amazing. We customize your procedure to accomplish your goals. Just share with us the problem areas where you'd like the fat in inches removed. And in one visit, they're gone, permanently. I can't tell you how often I hear clients say how many years they've been trying to diet and exercise those inches away. And we did it in one comfortable visit. It's time to get your summer on. Visit any of our Sonabella locations across the U.S. And right now, you can save $250. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. That's sonobello.com slash save. You already know the fun of King's Island. Blue ice cream for lunch, catching your breath between screams on the beast. But this summer at King's Island, this is 50. Don't miss their 50th anniversary celebration all summer long with new shows, new food, and new fun. It's King's Island's biggest summer yet. And now through August 14th, King's Island is turning up the excitement with a daily 50 Years of Fun street party. It features dancers, music, and more, commemorating the last 50 years. Make plans today at visitkingsisland.com. You're listening to the X-Zone Radio Show live and around the world on the Talk Star Radio Network. Visit us online at www.xzone-radio.com. Radio and TV show is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the X-Zone Radio and TV show or in any manner endorsed by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, their advertisers, Talkstar Radio Network, or its affiliated stations and their employees. One eight seven seven five two eight eight two five five is toll free. 
Welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. We're coming to you live and around the world on the Talk Star Radio Network and our fine family of broadcast affiliates and a growing family it is across Canada, the United States, Central America, the Caribbean, South America, the Pacific Rim, 20 Asian countries, and across Europe. If you'd like to give us a call, our toll-free number is, as I said, one 528 8255 That's toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii. Our email address, xzone at talkstarradio.com. On MSN Messenger, talkstarradio at hotmail.com. And our websites, www.xzoneradio.com and xzonetv.com. And don't forget, the X-Zone archives are available at iTunes. This hour, we're going to be speaking about the Sphinx mystery, the forgotten origins of the Sanctuary of Anubis. Shrouded in the mystery for centuries, the Sphinx of Giza has frustrated many people who have attempted to discover its original purpose. Accounts exist of the Sphinx as an oracle, as a king's burial chamber, and as a temple for the initiation into the her hermetic mysteries. Egyptologists have argued for decades about whether there are secret chambers underneath the Sphinx, why the head-to-body ratio is so out of proportion, and whose face adorns it. Well, tonight on our show, we have the authors of the Sphinx Mysteries, Robert and Olivia Temple. And uh, Professor Robert Temple is the author of a dozen challenging and provocative books, commencing with the international bestseller, The Serious Mystery. He, um, his books have been translated into a total of 44 foreign languages. He combines solid academic scholarship with the ability to communicate with the mass public. He is a visiting professor of history and philosophy of science at, uh, I, I know I'm going to screw this name up, I think it's Tsinghua University in Beijing, and previously held a professorship position at the, uh, an American university. For many years, he was a science writer for the Sunday Times, The Guardian, and a science reporter for Time Life, as well as a frequent reviewer for Nature and profile writer for the New Society, uh, I'm sorry, the New Scientist. Also joining us is Olivia Temple. She is an artist and a writer who has contributed to many well-known magazines in the United Kingdom. She was co-author with her husband of Aesop, The Complete Fables, which was published by Penguin Classics. She organized the Egyptian, Greek, and Italian archaeological research trips for the Project for Historical Dating and took part in all of the uh, archaeometric uh, dating work in Egypt with the permission of the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities. And R Professor Temple and Olivia, welcome to the Exxon. Hello, Rob. It's Thank you very much. Good morning. Oh. Good. Very nice to be on your show. Well, it's great. imagine all those countries listening. Yes, yes, and um, congratulations on a wonderful book. Very kind of you. Um, I'm glad you've uh, enjoyed it, and I hope lots of other people will. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about your book, The Sphinx Mystery, when we come back from this two-minute commercial break. Robert uh, Temple and Olivia Temple, please stand by. We will be returning in two minutes. Exonation, the website for this fascinating book sphinxmystery.info We'll continue on the other side of this two-minute commercial break investigating the mysteries of the Sphinx with Professor Robert Temple and Olivia Temple as the Exxon continues live and around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.
Robert and Olivia Temple are our special guests this hour. We're talking about the Sphinx Mystery. www.sphinxmystery.info is their website. And Robert, what is the Sphinx Mystery? Well, the Sphinx Mystery is what is it and why is it and all the questions that most people don't ask because they think they know the answers. But in fact, as our book demonstrates, unfortunately, just about everything everybody ever thought they knew about the Sphinx is wrong, and um, there's quite a different Sphinx out there hmm. in Giza waiting for us to look at it with fresh eyes. What made you write the book, and uh, how long did it take? Well, it took us uh, 10 years, actually, wow. to, to write this book. It's 576 pages long, and it has 375 pictures, and um, there's plenty in there. <laughs> yes. Almost every page has a new fact. We love Egypt, and um, once you go to Egypt and you start wandering about the desert and you look at the, the sites, the pyramids and the temples and the amazing stonework that the ancient Egyptians were able to do with their art and, and geometric mindset, you, you get rather hooked on it and you end up going back and going back. and. We've been doing this for years now, and we've been very fortunate that we were able to get permission to explore, and especially to explore areas that the general public don't normally get to see. So Robert behaves a bit like a cosmic detective, and I'm his Dr. Watson. So I've, I've got the uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson of Egyptology with me tonight. Well, she's an awful lot uh, uh, more attractive than the classic Dr. Watson, I can tell you. <laughs> And Robert's a bit of a of a liability to 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 take to these places because Why? he's he's very disobedient, and he jumps into pits where you're not meant to jump, and he he stays too long, and he leaps across dangerous crevices and rooftops, and leaves me behind with uh, an inspector, often a woman uh, who I can't really speak to because I I don't speak any Arabic, and. Um, I have to stay calm, and I have yeah. to think of things to say which will distract them, like, what is that bird sitting over there? And I hope that somebody will haul him out before it gets dark and they send a, a search party. So, the, so, the really scary bits are when I have to crawl down cobra holes and get covered in spiders and things like uh, that. Yeah, so, so not only are you the Sherlock Holmes of Egyptology, but you're also an Indiana Jones. Yeah, he's even got the hat. You know, ah. I actually had a great-great-grandmother whose first name was Indiana. That's true. Well, there you go. Wow. Uh, I have to ask you this. Whose face is on the Sphinx? Mm. Now, are you sure you really want us to tell you that, or shall we keep it a secret? <laughs> oh, that's it. I won't be able to sleep now for sure. <laughs> when the early travelers went uh, to, to Egypt and, and looked at the Sphinx mm -hmm. way back in the 1600s and uh, earlier, um, one person a Frenchman described it as representing a young adolescent or a woman. But uh, seriously, we have identified the face on the Sphinx precisely and proved it. It's all in the book, of course, but um, what happened was that the original head of the Sphinx mm -hmm. was not the head of a man. It was recarved. Oh. And, and so the, the face that's on it now was carved in a period of Egyptian history which is known as the Middle Kingdom by the third pharaoh of that dynasty whose name was, and wait for it, you won't be able to spell it, Amenemhet II. 
He was quite a good-looking guy, and he was not shy. He does have that strange Mona Lisa look. Yes, a yeah. slightly enigmatic smile. Could possibly be a woman. He may have been gay. Ah, oh, maybe it was a man who met S. Well, 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 I understand. I understand that Cleopatra at times wore a fake beard. Well, that was a, a sign of being a yeah. pharaoh, and uh, so she had to. Yes, uh, and, pharaoh's life is tough. Yeah, I guess, eh? All those women taking care of you and <sighs> an artificial beard in her case, I hope. Well, they also they wore lots of artificial aids, but you know, like wigs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to refer to anything else. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Um, well, you know, when I when I looked at this at the things as things, I um I, I saw a resemblance to Queen Nefertiti. Hmm. Well, she was quite a beautiful gal. Yes, she was. I uh, wouldn't have minded uh, having her around the house. What about you, Rob? Well, you know what? I I think her conehead would have got to me after a while, but. <laughs> that reminds me of a film called Conehead. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Yeah. Have you been to Egypt, Rob? Not yet, but I'll go if you ask me. Yeah, I think you have to. You have to. You have to see it before you die. I, I have heard so many wonderful things from people who have gone over there. In fact, one of our one of our friends, uh, Patricia Corey, uh, takes tours over to uh, right. to Egypt, and uh, so does. Let me see, uh, Mark Mark Pinkham's wife. I her first mm -hmm. name escapes me right mm -hmm. now. But whatever I've heard from people who've gone to Egypt once, they get hooked on it. They, they can't believe the, the feeling of the antiquities. They, they feel as if Egypt brings them alive and they feel at home. This is a very strange thing that does happen to you. And it's, um, it's really inexplicable. There is definitely some atmosphere or a, a hangover from mm -hmm. ancient times in the air, like the scent of a lotus flower. And it is completely fascinating and mysterious, and one just and the Egyptian people are so sweet and hospitable and and dear, and you just feel I do want to come back here. Yeah. I want to live here for a while. I understand that during what was it uh, one of the wars that the uh, the face of the Sphinx was actually shot at by the soldiers who had nothing better to do. Used as target practice. Oh, for well, God's sake! In fact, the story that the nose was shot off by Napoleon's soldiers is actually false. It was hacked off in the 13th century by a religious fanatic called Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who wanted to purge Egypt of non-Islamic influences, and um, he succeeded in getting as far as the nose. But, but um, that wasn't necessarily uh, an accident, because traditionally, for thousands of years throughout the world. It's been assumed that if you knock a nose off a statue or an effigy, that you are essentially killing it, mm. that is taking its magic away. And don't forget that the Sphinx in history has repeatedly been completely covered in sand. So for many years, hundreds of years, it was only the head and a bit of neck that stuck up out of the sand. And people used to just clamber over the head or use it to throw stones at and uh, it was in fact thought of as very bad luck to climb up over the head and several people did meet with unpleasant accidents soon after doing so like being thrown off their horse yes uh, way back in the 17th century a frenchman fell off the head and killed himself you've got to be careful when you get around the sphinx and start climbing on his head 
We but can't do that now, of course. It, it was thought to be a woman for a long time, for hundreds of years, for the simple reason that it, it had this strange headdress, which yes. people had forgotten was once a, a sacred headdress of a pharaoh. Um, they call it in Egyptian a nemeth headdress, mm -hmm. and it was used for sacred purposes, but uh, it looks like something a woman would wear, and so it was assumed it must be a woman because no man would no normally go around like that, so they thought. The well, there is also that rather androgynous expression and the enigmatic smile, so it's completely understandable that one would think it was a woman, and of course it would be a goddess. The, when Olivia says it reminds her of the Mona Lisa, she's got a real point, because yes. it is this strange enigmatic quality that they mm -hmm. share. The, the rest of the body, uh, a lot of people say it's a lion. Is it possible that it's a cat? Because the Egyptians revered cats. Well, it's true they revered cats, but, but what it really was, it was a, a dog. A um, dog. Sorry to all those cat lovers out there who, who would rather that it might be a cat, like their dearly beloved that's rubbing along their ankles at the moment. But it, the, the sacred dog known as Anubis um, was the traditional guardian of the necropolis where mm -hmm. people were buried. And, and it was a gigantic statue of a crouching dog, and it's in the dog's crouching position with those long legs out front and so on. And it would have had a head in proportion, which was the dog's head. And most people are familiar with the image of a crouching dog statue that was found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Um, that brings to mind something very similar to what the Sphinx would have looked like originally. Now, there was a period, well, there were several periods of chaos in Egyptian history, but the, the first great one was, is what the Egyptologists call the first intermediate period, which is rather a tame name for a wild time. And after that part of Egyptian history known as the Old Kingdom collapsed mm -hmm. in social chaos, plague, famine, um, floods, droughts, everything all at once, where the rule of law collapsed and, and there was no government anymore and everything was a total mess. Not unlike the United States in 2009. I was going to say that, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was this period when mobs are known to have rampaged around the Giza Plateau, smashing mm -hmm. everything in sight out of their rage. Soon to be seen, I suppose, in Washington. <laughs> and, uh, not to mention Wall Street. And um, they mutilated things that they could get their hands on, and, and we know that they smashed the mm -hmm. statues of the pharaohs uh, and so on. And it must have been at that time that the head of the Sphinx was mutilated, well, which would have been easy to do with a long pointy nose and tall pointy ears. Right. Knock them off like that shake later did with the nose of the recarved head. And so it would have just been like a stump. And then um, about 300, two, three hundred years later, when this pharaoh Amenemhat II came along, and he took an interest in Giza, even though it wasn't really near the base where they were having their capital in those days, he would have said, okay, we're going to have to put a new head on this. And, and by the way, uh, you know, I'm quite a good-looking guy. I think I'll put my face on there. So he wasn't an egomaniac particularly, but it was sitting there waiting for something to be put on it, so he thought, why not me? I just want to mention that uh, it used to, there used to be a lot of bright colored paint used mm -hmm. on the Sphinx, and uh, many of the early travelers described it as being blood red. 
the face was red and the body was yellow. Wow. Please stand by, Robert and Olivia. We have to take a commercial break with the news. www.sphinxmystery.info. Dr. I'm sorry, Professor Robert uh, Temple and Olivia Temple are a special guest, and they'll return with me on the other side of the news as we continue right here on Talkstar. My name is Michael Talkstar, Canada's leading mentalist from Toronto, Ontario. Hi, my name is Splenda, and you're listening to my dad, Ron McConnell, on the XM. This is Psychic Dorothy from St. Catharines, and you're listening to Rob McConnell. Hello, my name is... Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Holly Reeves, an astrologer from Astro for You, and you're listening to Canada's number one paranormal radio show, The X Zone, with Rob McConnell. Welcome to The X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. Professor Robert Temple and Olivia Temple are our special guests this hour. We're talking about their new book called Sphinx Mystery. And, uh, Robert, how long did it take the original builders to complete the building of the Sphinx? It's carved out of a solid um, bedrock of limestone. So, But as it's still today the mm-hmm. largest uh, stone statue in the world, it couldn't have been done just in uh, a few weeks. So... Yeah, this would have been a huge effort of carving, as it's um, really the size of a small ocean liner. <laughs> I mean, when you stand beside it and see how huge it is, you just don't know how they ever did it. It's hard to know how long it would have taken, but I would say, well, at least two or three years of, of, of full-time labor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really hard to imagine, because you would have had to have a team working on it, and... and how would they all get the template right? One false stroke, you know. Uh, on the other hand, you couldn't just have one Michelangelo That's right. doing it because he would have had to have ten lifetimes. Mm-hmm. It, it, how they managed to do this kind of thing, to make something so huge from a small drawing, 
and get it in proper proportion, that is with the original head, of course, is, is an amazing feat. It's really hard to imagine. They did have grids whereby they were able to expand and, um, and shrink things in size because they, they are known in Egypt to have used geometrical grids um, whereby they could take something that was small and, and get it to scale in a much larger size. We found a lot of those plans. So they must have had a really huge grid for something that's still the biggest statue in the world, even now in 2009. But what? a lot of it was already an existing huge lump of limestone, wasn't it? So it was because it was a plateau, there would have been this huge protuberance, and they would have used that as a basic idea and of the basis of the creature that finally ended up, they finally ended up with. It, it is the bedrock, it's, it's, and everything's been carved away from around it, so it's like doing a statue in reverse. Right. Why is it that people, or I shouldn't say people in general, but people who want to believe in the extraterrestrial connection believe that the Egyptians could not have accomplished the pyramid and the sphinx and many of the other accomplishments that they did without the existence of ETs when archaeologists and scientists have proven time and time again that these were a very ingenious people and that they did them themselves. Well, how the pyramids were constructed is such a, an astounding subject that one could go on about that for many hours. And, um, in fact, I, I actually discussed that in my next book called The Egyptian Dawn, which should be published in about a year's time, because I've made a lot of extraordinary new discoveries there. But this book is, is really confined to the subject of the Sphinx, except that I was able to demonstrate, and you can find this in the last two chapters, that the Sphinx and the three main Giza pyramids are a unified design concept, that they were all designed and planned at the same time, for whatever reason, because um, you'll find in the book something called the Golden Giza Plan, which is based upon a, um, an Egyptian um, geodetic survey map of the plateau, so it's all perfectly accurate, uh, upon which I have um, superimposed in gold rays various lines connecting key points, none of which had ever been discovered before, um, which show, in fact, conclusively demonstrate that these four monuments are all linked by a recurring angle known as the golden angle, and rays, as I call them, shooting out from key points like midpoints, um, the apex of a pyramid or... or the midpoint of the base of a side to the the middle and, and extremities of the sphinx, for instance. And this is the same identical angle that repeats over and over and over and over again in a kind of crazy way on the Giza Plateau and forms the secret um, design pattern linking the four monuments. Maybe you could only see it from above. In fact, it, it is something you have to visualize from above, which would... would encourage people to think that it must have been an extraterrestrial design because it only really makes sense if you can see it from an aerial perspective. Well, it, it, it's really very extraordinary that you can only detect it if you have a geodetic survey map. Sorry about that. That's a buzzer gone off in our apartment. Geodetic uh, survey map is something that we can only have in modern times. Mm -hmm. 
if you try and find this pattern on the inadequate survey maps prepared by the archaeologists at ground level, you can't discover it. So we, we don't really know how on earth ancient Egyptians were able to get that degree of accuracy. They're very accurate in, in, in everything that they've done, including the pyramids. And like when you, when you look at the, the, the engineering behind the pyramid in that period of time, it certainly does raise a lot of mysteries. But once again, I believe in, forgot, you know, in, in forbidden archaeology and forgotten archaeology. So anything is possible. Well, the, the Sphinx mystery is full of forgotten archaeology, and one of the key things that uh, uh, we were able to discover mm -hmm. is the conclusive proof of the existence of a chamber, a burial chamber beneath the Sphinx. And I was able to discover all this in, mostly in the British Library, although from, also from some other libraries. Right. There are 281 years' worth of published reports by many people in, in different languages of um, eyewitness accounts of people who actually entered this chamber, uh, which was reached by a vertical shaft that was intruded uh, from the top of the Sphinx's back huh. at the haunch region. And this was a burial chamber because they, it, although it had been reached in antiquity, they found remains of a coffin smelling of resin. And the interesting fact is that the chamber's walls were covered in hieroglyphics. So if we could get back in there, we could read the hieroglyphics and find out who was buried there, presumably. Right. But in 1926, this was all sealed in cement by this manic French character called Emile Barres, who was a, a great tidier up. He wasn't really an archaeologist. He, he did a lot of excavation work on the Sphinx, and he was a, uh, intent upon making it fit for tourism, as they still are today out there. You know, everything's got to look good because we're going to have some tourists coming. And so the Sphinx is very seriously Botoxed and had countless jobs, not to mention the wrong kind of nose job. <laughs> and it's been tarted up to such an extent that it's a kind of, parody of itself and, and it's on the verge of becoming a Disneyland artifact. But if you go into the forgotten archaeology of the Sphinx, as you were just referring to it, um, then you discover what's really going on. And we've now got the conclusive proof of this mysterious chamber that many books have been written about speculating. Does it exist? But in fact, I found the proof that it exists. 281 years of published reports of people who actually entered this chamber and wrote, wrote it up in their books. And all of that material is in our book because every description of the Sphinx from the time of the Romans, mm -hmm. a man called Pliny, up until 1837 are, are all in the back of the book. Olivia translated all the French ones and I translated the German ones and it's all there and you don't have to go to your library anymore. Just buy the book and, and you've got the whole lot. It's very fascinating from one aspect, well, from many, but one of the things that struck me when I was looking at these French travellers' tales is how long it took them from, to get from Cairo to the Sphinx. Nowadays, you can see that the, the edge of Cairo is creeping nearer and nearer. There's hardly any space of desert left right. between the Giza Plateau and, and the town of the city, but it used to take many hours on horseback. In fact... Uh if you even if you went by boat, it took three hours just to get to the village, and then you had to ride an ass 
um, and then you had to get off the ass and, and use your feet to climb up the plateau. So this was a huge trip, and you could just about squeeze it into one day if you started at 5 in the morning, but it was normal to, to take two days to make this trip to the Giza Plateau from Cairo in, in, in the old days. Speaking of water, Robert, why don't you uh, tell, tell Rob something about the water theory? Well, if you go to Egypt and you see the Sphinx, mm -hmm. um, one of the first things that strikes you is that here you have the largest statue in the world, and it's sitting in a hole in the ground. And why isn't it on top of something yeah. showing off? Uh, why do you have to sort of peer down into this pit to look at this giant thing? What's going on? And a lot of people have called attention in recent years to the fact that there seems to be signs of water erosion in this pit and on the Sphinx itself. And so we've figured this one out. It's not what has come to be known as the ancient rain theory. Um, and the Sphinx isn't of monumental antiquity going back 12,500 years, as many people say, uh, when we don't even really know that there was actually rain there anyway. Um, what was really going on is that before the Aswan Dam existed, the Nile at the inundation period for three months of the year reached right up to the doors of the Sphinx Temple, which is in front of the Sphinx. And, and so I have um, um, put together the entire process by which water was let in through a channel into this pit, which mm -hmm. was in fact a moat. And oh, my gosh. It was sealed off in the channel by sluice gates and water gates, and I've photographed all the bolt holes and, and, and counterweight um, places and so on in the stone to, to show and, and demonstrate that all these gates were there to control the water flow. So this was a moat, and, and you had this giant statue of Anubis in the Old Kingdom period sitting surrounded by water. And it was known as Jackal Lake, which is mentioned many times in the ancient pyramid text, because you know if you ask an Egyptologist, yeah. is there any evidence of the Sphinx in the ancient text, they'll say, well, no, it's never mentioned. How can you have the largest statue in the world never mentioned? That's crazy. But it's because they're looking for a lion with a man's head, and it was neither a lion nor did it have a man's head. It was an Anubis. And if you look at the most ancient texts, and, and I've quoted them all in, in the book at great length, you find that they specifically describe that there's a giant Anubis the guardian of Giza, mm -hmm. it sits beside a causeway, and it's surrounded by this lake, which is known as Jackal Lake, where sacred ceremonies took place. And every time the pharaoh died, his internal organs were removed before his mummification took place and put into four jars. And the, the pyramid texts even describe his son, the new pharaoh, going down to Jackal Lake and, and submerging these jars in the water and, and washing um, his father's weary heart, his, his father's organs in these jars in a sacred uh, rite that preceded his mummification and, and later burial. And this was all going on, and, and then the pharaoh would go in, get into a little boat, and he'd make a circuit round Anubis, uh, which was also known as the Winding Waterway. And we've put together this entire lost story of what really took place at, at the Sphinx, what it really was, what its true purpose was, why it was there, and, um, and all these forgotten things. So it was entering, the main point was that yes. you would enter the netherworld, and the, the gate to the netherworld was under the care of Anubis, so it was the most sacred place 
in the world. That is truly fascinating. That is truly fascinating. There was so much pomp and circumstance in everything that they did in Egypt. And, you know, to, to, what, to look back in time through a time portal to what Egypt was and to look at Egypt today, you have to say, what happened? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor. Well, the, the beginning, the, the, in schools now mm -hmm. in Egypt, they are teaching the kids about ancient Egyptian life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And sure. you, you see groups of, of children doing drawings in the museums and looking in wonder at the Sphinx and at the pyramids, and, and they are very much in, enthralled by it themselves. But many, many cultures have collapsed, and we wonder when we go to many other countries, what happened? What happened? Well, you know, um, everybody should strongly support the existing Egyptian government, I can tell you, because if, if the, the wrong people ever came to power in Egypt, there wouldn't be any tourism or archaeology anymore. Really? You, you get my drift. Really Nothing was left to chance in the design, so the whole place is like a puzzle and you, you can't help but try to fit the pieces into each other and, and there's a great cosmic order mm -hmm. and a great plan behind it all and you know it's there but you can't quite figure out what was it really all about. Professor and uh, Olivia, please stand by. We have to take our final break. Professor Robert Temple and Olivia Temple are very special guests. Their website, sphinxmystery.info. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as the Exxon continues live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on Talkstar. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. I'd like to take this opportunity of thanking all our guests tonight. Rhonda Pals, uh, Pallas Downey was with us in our first hour. We talked about living flower essences. Hour number two, Angela Donovan, who is a spiritual mentor and medium, was with us. Jane Doherty, uh, the author of Awakening the Mystic Gift in hour number three, and our very special guests this hour, Professor Robert Temple and Olivia Temple, talking about their new book, entitled Sphinx Mystery. Uh, first of all, to both of you, thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning here on the Exxon. It certainly has been a great pleasure, a lot of super information. But, Olivia, I have a question for you. How do you get on working together as a married couple? Well, I often wonder how we've <laughs> done it for so long. It's good fun. It's a challenge, and it's never dull. Um, between us, we have qualities that uh, the other one lack so we we manage very well on the whole sometimes i i get embarrassed sometimes i get angry that robert is such a wild card but i can tell you it, it's great fun and this book has been a real adventure 
Robert, how Olivia do you... is incredibly visually observant, and when we've been working on some of the Egyptian monuments, she mm-hmm. spots things that I don't see, because among her many activities and talents, she's a very fine painter and highly visual, and whereas I'm often so busy thinking I don't notice things. And, and I tend to be more book-oriented, but she's very observant. Um, for instance, she always notices what everybody's wearing, which I don't see, you know. Mm-hmm. She'll oh, say that's... something afterwards like, did you see that man's shoes? And I would say something like, shoes? I don't ever look at shoes. <laughs> you only just remember to pack your shoes. Robert takes a suitcase full of books. I take the, the clothes, the hats, the change of underwear. Oh, gosh. And um, so you could say I'm his manager. And his, his editor, and uh, he, and my he, nanny. You also and sound. His nanny. He is an exceptional person. He's got a brain that's um, far too big for his body, a bit like the Sphinx the other way around. And uh, <laughs> we we just. I wonder. I have to write the story of our life together. Well, it also sounds like you're his best friend in the whole world. I hope so. I just wanted to mention. You said you're talking about flower mm-hmm. scents. Yes. And essences. Mm-hmm. Um, the blue lotus, which is like a wonderful sort of mauvey blue water lily, yes. was a, a symbolic flower, which the scent of which bestowed immortal life Isn't in ancient yeah. Egypt. That's wonderful. And it's depicted in the carvings of all the kings and queens and gods and everyone. They're, they breathe in this scent of the blue lotus, and they... Mm-hmm. They live forever, so you we ought to be looking for some of those. Yeah, I think we should. You often see them holding the flower with the petals separated like an oxygen mask over their faces. So Professor um, and Mrs. Uh, Olivia Temple, we have to say so long for now, but I do thank you so much for uh, this wonderful hour and for sharing so much with us, and uh, thank you for finally solving the mystery of the Sphinx. Thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Good night. Wonderful and I hope to be on your show, Rob. Well, I hope to have you back on again, Professor, and uh, take care of yourself, and happy travels to both of you. Thank you. Good Bye. night now. Bye-bye. Wow, great hour. Their website is sphinxmystery.info. Melanie at Master Control, Super Night Dear, thanks for keeping us up on those four big satellites in the Sky Galaxy 4R, Telstar 7, Aglia 2, and on G3, and of course on TalkStarRadio.com, streaming audio. Rob at, Ma- at uh, Exxon TV, thank you. Stephanie at Production, thank you. And to you, the Exxon Nation, thank you for allowing us to be part of your day or night, no matter where you are. So until tomorrow night at 10 o'clock, take care of each other and keep your eyes to the sky and your heart.